Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to the Skylight Podcast. My name is Agnes Brinsky. I'm here from Skylight Books. Uh, I'm very excited today to be joined by Daniel Mendelssohn, who is the author of Three Rings, A Tale of Exile, Narrative, and Fate. Uh, the book comes out next week on September 8th um, from the University of Virginia Press. Pref, press. <laughs> um, a brief bio, uh, Daniel Mendelssohn is a frequent contributor to The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books, where he is editor-at-large. His books include the memoirs An Odyssey, A Father, A Son, and An Epic, and The Lost, A Search for Six of Six Million, as well as three collections of essays and criticism, most recently Ecstasy and Terror, From the Greeks to Game of Thrones. He teaches literature at Bard College. Um, so this book is this gorgeous, alchemical, painful, and dexterous, very concise interweaving of many things, uh, many people, many moments in history. And while there are more than three figures who play an important role in the book, there really are three that are at the core of it. Would you just name those three and describe them a little bit? Yeah, so um, at one level, the book tells the stories of these three writers uh, separated by centuries and cultures um, who are all exiled in one way or another uh, 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 and who all uh, wrote works that in some way um, were refracted through the Odyssey. Um, so the first is Eric Auerbach, the uh, 20th century great 20th century uh, literary critic and the author of Mimesis, uh, one of the really great um, surveys of the Western literary tradition, who was a German Jew fled from Hitler in the mid 30s and ended up in Istanbul, um, where he wrote this great pean to Western civilization, even as Western civilization was blowing itself up. Um, the second of my rings is uh, a 17th and early 18th century French writer called François Fénélon, uh, who was a archbishop and also a tutor to the grandchildren of Louis XIV, uh, who wrote as a kind of ethically instructive uh, manual in a funny way, a, a kind of a fan fiction based on the Odyssey called The Adventures of Telemachus. Telemachus is Odysseus's son. He's a character in the Odyssey. Uh, but Fenelon wrote this, it really is a kind of early fan fiction where he takes the characters and gives them a whole new set of adventures. 
Um, and the third of my authors is uh, W.G. Sebald, the German novelist, who was sort of self-exiled, you could say, from Germany, where, where clearly he felt the, um, this sort of national collective guilt uh, for World War II was so oppressive that he spent most of his life actually in England, um, where he taught and where he wrote these wonderful novels for which he's quite well known. Uh, here. So, so I sort of took these three stories, and to some level my book is, you know, uh, three sort of mini biographies of these three writers and descriptions of their work, particularly their interest in um, narrative, how narrative works, and there's a sense that I try to evoke at a certain point in my book where their own uh, sort of geographical wanderings are become a kind of parallel to each of these authors' literary style, which is very digressive uh, or interested in digressive and rambling. Um, so those are the th ostensibly the three rings. As you say, there are other characters and a sort of surprise guest star at the very end, you might say. Yes, you know? yes. Um, um, and it feels, I mean, in the book right now, they all, their lives all sort of intersect and touch and, and relate through time and space in all these incredibly, some very tiny and obscure and some sort of profound ways. And it feels like a perfect fit, but I can, I'm sure that that wasn't always clear to you or that wasn't always a thing that, people don't tend to think of these three as a set. So how, what was your relationship to each of them before you started working on this book and how, when did you, how did they arrive together in it? Well, they arrived together sort of by different routes, appropriately enough. Um, I. So while I was writing my book, An Odyssey, which came out in 2017, which is really about the Odyssey and also uh, this remarkable experience I had with my late father, sort of reading the Odyssey with him um, and uh, going on this wacky cruise that recreated the voyages of Odysseus. Um, and while I was working on that book, I kind of, as one does, you know, anything to avoid writing. I, I, I went down these sort of rabbit holes at various points in my own research and reading. And one of them led me to Fenelon uh, uh, and the adventures of Telemachus, which I very vaguely knew about. You know, it was an incredibly influential book throughout the 18th century. And um, because it, you know, it was a kind of veiled critique of Louis XIV and his autocratic rule. Uh, and uh, that's why he was exiled for writing it. Um, so I kind of, I, I was at a certain point writing this other book interested in the sort of afterlife of the Odyssey. And I thought I might write something about Fenelon. I spent a lot of time researching him. He is a wonderful character, very sympathetic and I, you know, spent months working on Fenelon. It didn't end up in that book. And then um, Auerbach has haunted me from my undergraduate days. I mean, this, uh, you know, as you know, I've also written a book about the Holocaust and, and its intersection with my own family history, The Lost. Um, and I've always, as a classics scholar, as a classicist, I've, always been haunted by the, the kind of poignancy of the story of this great German scholar, you know, trained in this famously rigorous German uh, method, whose 
writes this book, which is one of really the greatest works of literary criticism. It surveys all of Western literature from Homer to Virginia Woolf. And he has to go to Istanbul. You know, he has to leave Europe to write this great encomium of European literature. I mean, the, the irony is so awful. Um, and there's something so touching about his belief in the power of literature to transcend this terrible historical moment. And then I've always been a great wild admirer of Zebald since the first thing I read of his 20 years ago, whenever it was. And, and, I, and he has this very famously, you know, people talk about this, you know, this sort of rambling, uneasy, meandering kind of narratives that don't lead anywhere and, and yet they sort of do. And one always senses in his work the kind of the, the weight of the Second World War, even when it's not mentioned, you know, it's always the 800 pound gorilla in the room. And, and I just started, I don't, it's funny, I don't know how the light bulb went off, you know, but I, I just had all this stuff about Fenelon left over from my other book. And then I got very involved in the sort of afterlife of Fenelon's book, The Adventures of Telemachus, which leads in a very circuitous way to this amazing Turkish writer from the 19th century who translated Fenelon's book into Turkish. Um, and I just somehow, you know, when you're writing, sometimes you see, it's like a door opens and you see a whole series of doors opening out and you suddenly see how a lot of things that have been floating around your head actually connect. And I just thought, I want to write a book that's in a funny way, almost like a novel in which each of these guys gets to have a chapter and yet they are connected by their interest in Homer, by their obsession with certain kinds of digressive narratives. And as you know, I won't give it away, but there's an amazing coincidence that actually links them all at the very end of my book, which coincidence get me thinking about circular narratives. You know, you always end up in the same place. And so at a certain point, I just thought, I'm, I'm gonna find a way to put these three really kind of touching literary figures in the same in the same place i mean it does feel very it does feel very novel like in that there's this the patterning of it and the rhythm of it there's a musicality to it that's quite um powerful in making Thank that you. dance for that dance work so like, and then, i mean i thought a lot about music which i think about anyway but i i i i think this is my best book you know in the sense that it's where I controlled the most everything that I want to do. And part of that was sort of threading these kind of leitmotifs through the book where there are these things that come up and you may not attach a lot of importance to them, all kinds of little snippets. But then as the, the weaving gets more dense, you know, they recur and they take on new meaning and, and I just wanted that to happen. Uh, so there is something musical about it in that sense. There are the sort of themes that come and go and then reappear later. And then later on you think, oh, that's why I, I'm hearing about this character or whatever. So I, did, I do think of it as a kind of a theme and variations, you might say. 
it's, it also feels like there's a lot at stake in this book. There's a tremendous amount at stake in terms of, because it, in the ways that it touches on all your previous work and the different yeah. worlds in which you've, and threads in which you've written and, um, and sort of alchemized, but it, it's, it feels like it's so much about stake about your own style, your own approach to criticism, your, our own approach to history. And, and so, okay, so I want to anchor that a little bit, that, that okay. thought. Um, early on, you introduced this dichotomy that Auerbach sets up between Hebrew style and the Greek style. Hebrew style is, is sort of exemplified in the Bible, in that case, and in Homer, the Greek style. And the Hebrew style is, tell me if I misstate, but it feels shadowed, elliptical, full of emissions. And the Greek style is sort of like brilliantly lit and elaborately described. And there's an implied faith in the Greek style that the world is describable and it's a complete world. Um, and one of the things that, this is where it comes to what's at stake. Like I, one of the things that's so painful and gorgeous in the book is watching your own dance between loyalty to those two styles yes. or, or, you know, like the, the loyalty of the classless classes to that Greek style and to that faith of completeness and the, 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 the fragmentation that the pain of history has imposed. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about that dance and how you, I mean, I, I feel like you're, there's so many shades of irony in how you frame it throughout the book, but like, how does your, how is that, how do you feel that moving back and forth in that book and in the course of your writing of it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we were just, before you started taping, you know, we were talking about my first book, The Elusive Embrace, which is very much, it's already the major stake in that book in a funny way is this sort of divided loyalty between my sort of Jewish upbringing and background and, and my Hellenistic classical, you know, uh, literary enthusiasms. And I guess it's something that I, because they're symbolic, obviously, you know, these two Athens and Jerusalem famously are two poles between which the West operates. And so I guess I never really thought about it before, but it is something that's haunted me for a long time. So in this book, so this book starts out with Auerbach and his, his opening chapter of this great work of literary criticism is actually about Homer and Homer's storytelling technique, which is called ring composition, where you're telling a story and then you interrupt yourself to tell some backstory that helps you understand the first story, but the backstory may have its own backstory ad infinitum and then it's like Chinese boxes and then you eventually work your way back to the primary narrative and by the, by the time you've done that you have so much information on so many backstories that everything is illuminated you know and and Auerbach contrasts that in the first chapter of his book with the style of Genesis with the Hebrew style which is obscure, it leaves things out when it tells the story. And he uses an example, the, the sacrifice of Isaac from Genesis and how, you know, he, you know, the, the narrator says they traveled for three days to get to the place where Abraham was gonna sacrifice Isaac and, you know, but he doesn't tell you where they're going or who they saw along the way and the history of everyone they ran into, which is what Homer would do, right? And I just started, I myself turned to this in a moment of narrative panic, you might say, when I was writing my Odyssey book and I had hit this sort of wall and I thought, oh, I'll look at Auerbach again. And I had remembered him incorrectly as loving the Homeric style, but he actually doesn't. He prefers the biblical style, which he finds more realistic. Because of course, in life, 
you don't know everything about everything all the time, right? You're, there is no omniscient narrator. And he likes the gaps and omissions of the biblical style. So those two poles in my book, my new book, Three Rings, become the sort of symbolic poles between which everything happens. And I call the Greek the optimistic narrative, right? You can know everything. If you had enough room, you could say everything, right? And I contrast that with the Hebrew technique, uh, you might say, which I call the pessimistic. You never know everything. And it's funny because, and then as I think about the authors, the other rings, right, that I talk about, I start classifying them, you know, in either of these two ways. So Proust, whom I talk about at great length, is an optimistic narrator, right? If you have 3,000 pages, you can say just about everything. But Zabald, who also has a circular, meandering style of narrative, is so shadowed that you don't feel all this movement is getting you anywhere. And I think that's obviously the point, right? That, that there, is, there is no arrival. There's just fruitless movement. And it just, it's something I've thought about or been haunted by for so long. I mean, it was very much operative in my book, The Lost, my Holocaust book, where even as I was sort of schlepping around the world, trying to track down the few remaining people who knew my relatives and could tell me something about them, I, I, I was so aware of, you know, so that's an optimistic project, right? You can go and interview everyone and talk to everyone and read all the books and whatever. But the, the pessimistic reality is that whatever you do retrieve from the horrors of history is never enough, right? That, you, you know, that's the Zebaldian dilemma. And so I guess, you know, this book is the shortest book I've ever wrote. And like 140 pages or something. And, um, and I, I, and yet I sort of, it, it just ended up sort of containing everything that I ever cared about, you know, the Greeks, the Hebrews, the Holocaust, uh, the problems of writing. Um, because another thread in this book, obviously, is, um, you know, a, a, a personal narrative account of the struggles I had writing one of my own books, you know. Um, but I guess they are all connected um, in some way. I mean, it, the, I guess the crude version of what I would want to ask is whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, which I know is <laughs> it's like a false question to ask, but there's something about, like one of my, the moments I found so moving is when you're describing the model of the Parthenon you were be beginning to build right. when you were young and that you abandoned by the time you get to high school. Just like, right. like incredibly detailed, ambitious right. project. Right. And there's something of, as you say, there's something of the optimist in the desire to build that. And right. there's also this sort of surrender to the weight of life and the movement of life in, in not finishing it, but also you you've, you've finish it in a sense in describing it in this book. Like there's the completion of your model is in this. Accounting. And that's all you need to do. Well, as you know, the, the whole, uh, the, this, the symbol of the model 
is a, is one of these light motifs I was talking yeah. about before. I mean, the book opens almost, I think, on the second page. I'm talking about when I was doing my Holocaust research and I was in a museum in Israel, what they had these most exquisite scale models of synagogues all over the world that had been destroyed. And it got me thinking of the whole idea of the model as this sort of, you know, both optimistic and kind of tragic effort of attempt at representation, uh, which of course is also what a book is. You know, it's what Auerbach's book is. He's basically building a model of the Western literary tradition, right? And so, and it just so happens that I was a model maker when I was a kid. I was always building these crazy models of ancient buildings, pyramids, Parthenons, whatever. And so there, and it just so happens also that one of the great climaxes in Zabald's novel, The Rings of Saturn, is an encounter with an obsessive model maker who's trying to build a model of the temple in Jerusalem, one of the most famously destroyed buildings in history, you know. And so all these things just kept coming together, but I, I love what you just said. I hadn't really thought of it that way when I was writing the book about the sort of climax of that narrative in Three Rings about my always trying to build models of the Parthenon, you know, the idea that at a certain point you don't have to build it anymore because it's, and I think I said this in the book, at a certain point I had pictured the model so completely in my head and I knew how to build it. I knew where all the pieces should be that it was almost unnecessary to actually build it. And I just think there's a great metaphor in there somewhere about representation, you know, the struggle of, of artists and writers and builders, you know, to represent things. Um, and there's a kind of almost a platonic perfection that's in your head that's never going to be matched yeah. by whatever it is you end up right. doing, you know. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's the, it's the virtual poem of Cadman and the, and that, yeah. you know, the different forms of mimesis. How do you get at that, that whole? Yeah. I want to ask you about the word fate, which is in the title of the book, um, a tale of exile, narrative, and fate, mm. and is not I, I, is not as is not explicitly as much in the book as many of the other patterns. But I can you can feel the shadow of it in the the idea of the writing on the wall and the idea of a looming catastrophe and the idea of a sort of like direction that we can't. So what does that word mean to you, and why did that end up in the title for you? Well, I just felt <clears throat> so. Part of what's going on in this book is, you know, it's a kind of extended reflection on the tension between the artificial, willed, constructed quality of literary narrative on the one hand, right? We write books, they have to have a form. And yet, on the other hand, you know, the sort of accidental, contingent quality of which so much of life is constructed, right? You, you, you know, we were just talking about this, right? You may have a plan, but, but something's gonna go wrong. And, you know, part of the, the trick of literature or a certain kind of narrative literature, realistic uh, narrative literature is to give the appearance of possibility and accident, right? You want your characters to act as if anything can happen. But of course, the whole time, you as the author know what's gonna happen. You're making things happen in a certain way. And in a funny way, I think, so 
as I said, a lot of the book is about that. And I'm writing about real people. I'm telling true stories about real people. And yet there are these fabulous coincidences, which one discovers along the way in my book, which I'm not making up, which I notice that sort of link these three, actually more than the three I already spoke about, you know, these three characters and this sort of amazing climactic surprise about how they all turn out to be connected. And I, I think of that as fate, you know, I think of the way things turn out in often real life looks more constructed than any literary fictional narrative could imagine. I, 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 I experienced this a lot when I was writing The Lost. The most amazing coincidence kept happening. You know, I, here I am researching a book about the Holocaust and I like, I literally would like get into an elevator in the hotel and a person would turn to me and say, oh, you know, I was in Bobby Yar, the terrible Russian killing pit during the Holocaust. And I'm like, how did they know that I'm writing this book about the Holocaust? And it got me thinking about just what coincidence is, you know? And it occurred to me that, because I thought if I were writing a novel about a guy who was going on a Holocaust search and every time he got at an elevator, somebody happened to mention that they were in the Holocaust, you know, I thought you wouldn't believe it, right? And yet here it was actually happening. And that got me thinking about what I call fate, right? The, the way that things often happen, you know, and of course, <laughs> So I'm telling you the story, it's a true story. It was an amazing coincidence. It really did happen in the elevator in Prague. But of course, and we think, oh my God, it's like, it's an amazing coincidence. It's fate that you would have gotten into this elevator, you know, and met that person. But of course, one could also say, I'm not telling you about the 5,000 times I've gotten into elevators and nobody said anything, right? So that whole kind of play between the accidental and the coincidental is in for me makes me think about plotting right the way a narrative works you have to make it feel real and reality is accidental and blah 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 and yet it always has to lead you to the place the destination the fated destination which is the climax of the book and so that's why i put fate in the title also because these you know we talk about fate or destiny the sense that things happen for a reason they turn out in a certain way because that's the way it ought to have turned out but even saying those sentences you have to make a huge number of assumptions right and that's what i want the reader to think about so when you get to the last two pages of this book and you see what the big reveal is um which connects Auerbach, Fenelon, Zebald, almost every character in the book, you think, oh my God, that's amazing. You know, but again, it's amazing because I've written the book to get you to that place. You see what I mean? And, and it's just, that to me is endlessly interesting. I mean, it's, it, it makes, this is a slight, a slight digression, but I wanna, I feels in the spirit of the conversation that that idea of guiding, that we're being guided by you through a landscape that seems plagued by destruction and disorder, but you find a path that gives us an order. Um, 
I wanted to ask you about teaching and your identity as a teacher, because Fenelon is a teacher and the Adventures of Telemachus is a pedagogical book and Auerbach was a professor. Like, what do you, how do you, how do you think of your role as a teacher in terms of guiding students and guiding other people through the landscape of our world and the texts it's, that you teach? It's such a good question. And, and, and Zabald was a professor also. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's funny until talking to Agnes, I never even reflected on the fact that all three of my characters were also teachers oh. as I am, um, but they were. Auerbach, famously a professor, Zabold, and Fenelon was a tutor. Um, so it's so interesting to me that you mentioned that because it's actually a major moment in my Odyssey book, an Odyssey, which reflects on that. The, and it's exactly what I was just talking about, the, the necessity of sort of having to operate between control and letting go right? Letting things happen and yet having to make them go in a certain direction, because that's what teaching is like, especially the kind of teaching, you know, that we do at Bard, which is a small school and every class is a seminar, basically. So you necessarily need the conversation to get to a certain place at the end of each class, you know, because that day you're talking about books one through four of the Odyssey. You've got to get, you know, you have to get through the material. That's the plot. That's fate. You have to get to book four. And yet you have to let the conversation move, be free, have that free play of observations and interactions, right? So as you get older, well, I'll just speak for myself. As I have gotten older, I, I like to think I've gotten better at the balance between needing to get them to a certain place, but also letting them speak their minds and have their thoughts and express their interpretations. And it is very tricky. And there's a moment in my Odyssey book where I realize that I've been too pushy and too control, too authorial, you know, trying to get them to think about the Odyssey in exactly the way I did. And I realized at that moment that I was actually not being a good teacher. I needed to relax more and let, let things go where they might. It's a very interesting question, actually. And I think most people who teach, you know, a great part of the struggle to be a good teacher is to figure out what the right balance is. I mean, that sounds, I'm, uh, it sounds like a special classroom to be in. I mean, that's what, that's, <laughs> that's, um, one more question about a different role that I know you have occupied, and it's a word that comes up in this book too, is translator. And I know you are a translator, have been a translator of Kabafi and others, I think, as well. Um, and you talk about the etymology of that word in the book as someone to carries across. And there's a lot in the book also about, about um, the movement of different cultures, Muslims, Christians, Jews, between East and West across borders. And there's a certain faith there that the translator has in being able to transport a text from one language to another. There's also this faith that these characters have, characters, figures have, right. in being yeah. able to carry their work across these spans. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, like in the world we are in now, there's a lot of borders are a big division borders. There's a lot of the sense of this divide and the desire to, there's like, I think there's something about that hope that feels really urgent and, and complicated now. So I'm curious yeah. to just hear you talk a little bit about that hope and that word well, translation. 
I think it's such an interesting idea. I mean, certainly, so on the, there's, you know, different sort of uh, rings that ripple out from this idea of translation. So in the, the sort of the narrowest or first ring is just, oh, how do I get, you know, sentence X into sentence Y? You know, how do I translate from language X into language Y? But you know, beyond that, there is how do I get the way this author thinks into a different language? You know, different languages, other languages don't have words sometimes for the for the thing you're trying to translate. It just doesn't exist. You have to work around it. But then more largely, you know, people always think of translation as about words. And I, I you know, it's much more that's going on. You have to really be carrying across a whole mind is what you're doing when you're translating an author. Um, and, but beyond that, as you mentioned, there's a sort of metaphorical expansion of this idea of translation, which in a funny way returns you to the, the original meaning of the word, which is to carry something over, right? And then that got me, and as you know, you know, there's so many sub narratives in in three rings about scholars fleeing, being oppressed, running away, taking with them the most precious texts that they think have to be rescued from destruction. And this is unfortunately an incredibly frequent occurrence in history. And I narrate these different movements, which are ironically constantly moving from east to west, you know, the 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 Jews running away from Ferdinand and Isabella to Istanbul, the Greeks running away from Istanbul to Italy, you know, it's a never ending and not very uh, 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 happy story, you know, but all of these people are carrying with them across these borders, what is most precious to them. I mean, you know, look, uh, the Italian Renaissance was kickstarted in many ways by Greek scholars who had fled the destruction of Constantinople, who moved to Italy, taking with them Greek texts that had been unknown to Europe for a thousand years, right? Um, and the poignancy, and of course here I also would think of my, in a much smaller way, my own relatives, you know, who did not successfully run away from destruction, you know, so I'm always haunted by this idea of some refugee arriving in some new place with one bag and in that bag has to be whatever was most valuable to that person. And of course now, you know, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but you know, all publishers always want their authors when they're out with a new book to somehow connect the dots to, you know, what's happening right now. <laughs> relevant, but Let's you know, I certainly hadn't thought of this that much when I was writing this book a year and a half ago. But it seems to me now that this image, which as you know, there's a certain image that is also one of these leitmotifs, a recurring paragraph throughout my book about the refugee at the end of their travels arriving in front of some building where they're going to have to now live in a different civilization. And there's a lot of that going on right now. I mean, literally it's going on, as we all know, and the masses of people fleeing for them for their lives. But I think also metaphorically, you know, that there are 
existential threats to civilization, our civilization right now. And who are going to be the people who are the carrying these precious bits of civilization to safety? You know, how does that happen? And I, I really hadn't thought of any of this uh, when I was writing, but now figures like Auerbach, are even more poignant, I think, now, um, you know, and it's funny because Auerbach and Zabold sort of frame the book structurally. And, you know, Auerbach is, you know, fleeing at the beginning of the cataclysm that Zabold, who was born at the end of it, can't ever get, and can't ever stop thinking about. So the book sort of embraces both the event and the aftermath. And I think it's, you know, these are things we need to be thinking about right now. You know, what is the nature of civilization? What does it mean to make a model of it? And what do you put into the model? What are the precious parts that you want to represent to someone who may not know anything about your civilization? And are you going to be able to carry it across? You know, and I do think that's something we need to be thinking about right now. Yeah, certainly. I mean, so I I feel like there are a thousand there are a thousand images and leitmotifs and shades of irony and complexity to this book that I could spend hours talking about. But I want to leave us with one last question, mm. which is sort of the Desert Island Disc style radio hour question about what's what's exciting you now, like what's been on your brain lately uh, that you're reading or or looking at or thinking about. Um, well, I you know look, uh, there's always a lot of great stuff out there and you know we can't despair i mean there are people making good and interesting work um and i think it's important to to remember that whether it's films television of which i'm a great fan and i watch all the time and you know all the things that remind you of everything that allows you to flex your muscles as a human. I've been watching this great show. This is, you know, this is not going to be a highbrow answer to your question. It's called Better Things. It's this mm -hmm. fabulous, actually it's an LA comedy. You're in LA with Pamela Adlon and it's so wonderful. And it's, you know, it's so deeply human. And I just think that, you know, that's our job. Our job is to attach to cultural products. And it doesn't always have to be, you know, Saint-Simon and Poussin, you know, it can be anything that just reacquaints you with the, I would say the complexity of being a human person is good for you, whatever that may be, whether it's Better Things or Zabald, or I've been reading Ivo Andrich, this amazing uh, Yugoslavian writer uh, and, you know, there's, I've been reading also Claudio Magris, who's one of my new incredible favorites. And I just think, you know, there's so much good stuff out there. Um, and there's always great, always great stuff. I reread things, you know, Cavafy is a great person to be reading right now because he thinks a lot about how civilizations end and what, what survives, you know. So I'm not pessimistic about that. People continue to produce amazing work in every field. Uh, I don't worry about that. Um, I worry about 
getting people to read these things and look at them, you know, um, and that's our job. You yeah. know? I mean, it's specifically to this conversation and to book selling and writing and criticism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for you. Um, well, I would certainly say that this book, Three Rings, is certainly at the top of that list of things that folks should go out and get a copy of. This is the sales pitch part of the conversation. Um, but it's really, a, a truly, it's a beautiful, complicated, painful, and very pro provocative book that sort of has been unfolding inside of me since I read it. So thank you. I appreciate Daniel Mendelson, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. And Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.